from Brooklyn, New York, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Fair Podcast. And Zach, this is going to feel really weird to you, but because of technical difficulties, I'm running the recording oh, no. tonight. Oh, no. Which means, which means I can mute you. Uh-oh. <laughs> but I still get to edit these at the end. So, you know, That's true. I can always, if the audio quality changes wildly, it's because I've had to splice my commentary back in. <laughs> That's true. I actually don't control the editing because I don't know how to do that. But, uh,. <laughs> What's been going on, man? Well, I bought a house. That's pretty exciting. Congratulations! Thank you. Yeah, uh, it uh, it's been uh, yeah, it's been an adventure. Uh, I can't say that it was uh, all you know uh, sunshine and lollipops, but it, 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 given what we were it prepared never for, no, given what we were prepared for by friends, family, or realtor, it actually wasn't too painful. Um, you know, obviously, I should say I am finding a piece of wood and knocking on it. We have not officially closed yet, but uh, yeah. uh, short of that, we are, you know, the, the offer has been accepted and uh, you're in contract. Have, yeah. We have the money. So that's always a good sign. Um, and um, yeah, so that was, that, that's been cool. Uh, it are is, you staying in Seattle? Yeah. Yeah. We are, we are still in Seattle a little, a uh, little bit. Uh, we're a few miles from where we currently live. Um, we are not going to be quite as uh, in the absolute center of uh, sort of, the brewing epicenter of Seattle, but still a, a, a relatively close drive and actually uh, quite near one of another favorite brewery of mine, which is kind of cool. So uh, it's a brewery up here that is, uh, makes all kind of like French style beers, which is very interesting, oh, cool. but I, I quite like. So um, can you, so can you walk there? Or we still yeah. have to drive. Nope. Can walk there. Can walk. It's about a half oh, that's mile awesome. away. Yep. Oh, that's yep. great, man. Um, so yeah, cause Seattle's like, I've been a few times, but I mean, obviously I still owe the trip where I was going to hang out with you. <laughs> um, but like, I don't, I have to admit, you know, I don't know it super, super well, but it's like, it's a city of neighborhoods, right? It's like, very true. A lot of houses. Okay. Yes. Yeah. It's a, it's a city of neighborhoods and it's a city where if this is changing a little bit, like they, we are finally kind of developing some of the mass transit infrastructure that would link things a little bit, but Seattle just geographically and sort of, um, you know, t- topographically is is a hard city to kind of you know it's not i mean it's not like i mean not just manhattan but even like you know most of of new york city with the exception i guess of staten island where like you know you can kind of just uh walk a long way before you reach a sort of obstacle that impedes you in terms of a you know a, a river or something like that or a body of salt water and here we've got lakes we've got uh puget sound obviously which is the end of the city and relatively you know big hills so there's kind of it's always been a little more pockets, but of course, as the city has grown, those have grown together more. Um, and with, like I said, a lot of the mass transit improvement that's happening now, probably those things will be a little less distinct, but but definitely still neighborhoods more than one kind of, and in all cities have you know, their neighborhoods. But I think like, you know, I always find it funny in Manhattan when, you know, someone you'd argue about what was, what was the technical definition of, you know, the Lower East Side. And it's like, well, you know, there's kind of it, but, you know, at the same time, like, it's not like the streets look different when you, when yeah. you go one block east. So did you drink anything special uh, for, for the clothes or for being in contract? Like, uh, uh, did you guys pop, or, or, or do you have something special planned for when you close? We have a special bottle. So we have, so, so far we have two bottles, one, one for when we close and then one for sort of our first like actual like dinner or night or whatever in the new house. Do share, um, do share. Well, I'm going to say the second one I'm going to save cause I'll, I'll, I'll leave content for, uh, <laughs> for that episode. But, um, Oh, but, no one will remember that. Half the people who listen to this one won't listen to that one. Uh, fair, fair. Uh, so yeah, so we have a, I have a couple of, I mean, unsurprisingly I have a bottle of champagne, um, which is, um, Egli Urier, which is one of my favorite How producers. Original. Uh, well, you know, I mean, I'm not the first person to suggest celebrating with champagne. I'm pretty sure. 100%, especially when you buy a house. Come on. Yeah. 
and then we have a, my wife and I have a bottle of wine from our, um, actually another bottle of sparkling wine, but from a domestic producer, Argyle in Oregon, which is the first winery that she and I went to together um, uh, when we started dating. And so uh, that'll be probably what we have the first night in the new house uh, is that is the tentative plan. Obviously circumstances could change, but uh, what most exciting, well, man, many exciting things, the, uh, the new house will also have space for an actual legitimate podcast studio. So uh, I have a little utility closet that will become where the cave I go into to record these. So um, you guys will notice probably an improvement in sound quality. Nice. Nice. I love yeah. it. How about you? Uh, what have you been drinking? Oh, gosh, man. So um, I've been doing this thing I love, uh, which I think we talked about a bunch, but I, I don't drink Monday through Wednesdays, uh-huh. which uh, has I, I've kept up with, which is great. But so on the weekends, let's see. So last weekend, so I hung out with uh, Keith on Saturday night. Uh, we went out to dinner uh, outside, obviously, with uh, with Naomi and Gina. Um, Keith's wife is Gina. Uh, and we had, gosh, we had some delicious orange wine. I can't remember the mm. producer. But we went to this place, Lorena Pastificio, which is okay. incredible in Fort Green. Just really sick pasta. Um, and they have a really amazing wine list. Um, and so that was a really delicious bottle. But again, like I don't like to take pictures of bottles when I got to dinner for some reason. And I like to be in the moment. So I actually, I feel bad. I don't remember the producer, um, but it was a really delicious bottle of orange wine that Keith had selected. And then on Sunday, Sunday night, I did something I had never done before. Uh, and I was actually pretty impressed with myself. So I think I've talked about this before. Naomi's been a vegetarian since she was five. Um, her personal choice, right? Her parents are not vegetarians. It wasn't like they subjected her to their own uh, sort of dietary restrictions. She, you know, decided she wanted to be a vegetarian based on, you know, the animals and things like that. And uh, anyway, so she's always been that way. But usually like when I want to have like a burger night, I'll make a burger for myself and I'll make something else for her, like grilled cheese or I'll do a veggie burger or whatever. And I finally was like, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to buy the Impossible Burger meat and I'm going to make smash burgers and so I made smash burgers with it. I followed the instructions uh, that I read on the LA Times, which were very helpful. Like I weighed each patty out to three ounces. So I made, you know, four three ounce patties. I got a nonstick pan, super, super hot. Then I added a little bit of oil. And I, I mean, there's smoke, obviously, but I seared them on both sides so they get crusty like a, a smash burger. And then I added cheese. So the second you, you sear one side, so super hot. And then when it's like a minute and a half and it's really crispy, you flip it and you immediately add the cheese and sear for another like minute to minute and a half. Okay. And it really has that sort of like shake shack in and out kind of like crust around texture. Yeah. And then I, you know, I added some caramelized onions, lettuce, tomato. I also bought this new sauce they're selling at uh, at Trader Joe's called Magnifica Sauce, hmm. which basically tastes like shack sauce okay. uh, or in and out sauce. And then I paired it with... Uh, this is gonna be weird because I talked about them another podcast, but Mayakama Chardonnay. Nice. Because uh, I was thinking I'm like do, and I was like, oh, I actually it's a veggie burger actually, so I can do a white wine, um, and it will stand up, and it was delicious. But the thing that I mean, the Mayakama Chardonnay was was awesome, but the thing that was really dope, to be very fair, was this burger. I was I was really impressed. I think I will do it more often. I don't know why I haven't been do- doing these plant based burgers more. Um, was this I think the I first was, time you had tried the Impossible Burger? I had had it in like, you know, tacos and things like that where huh. I had had it, you know, with seasonings. And I'd had it once at like a, a food truck. I remember okay. like two or three years ago and was like, meh. Mm. And honestly, I think maybe they didn't do it well. But yeah, so I guess it was the first time I had made it for myself and I was blown away. Yeah. I was like, this is, look, it's not a burger. I think if you are this person who's like, 
this better replace my cheeseburger. It doesn't do that, right? It doesn't taste like beef, but it tastes really good if that makes sense. I don't I don't know how to explain to people. I like if you're going in being like this better tastes like beef, no, it doesn't taste like beef. It's not made out of beef, but it yeah. tastes really good and better than any veggie burger I've ever had. Like I haven't it has that quality of it being meat. You know, veggie burgers are get crumbly, they're dry, they fall apart. This like had moisture, it yeah. was really unctuous, it had the umami I wanted. It was really, really good. Cool. Yeah, I've definitely had um I've never made them at home. I've had them out a couple times uh, pre-pandemic. And I've always found, uh, my thinking on it has been that, you know, I when I make burgers, especially at home, I tend to kind of go almost the opposite direction from you. Like I go very like minimal ingredients, like basically just um, like ground meat and cheese. But I also do stuff like ground grind my own meat. And usually Caitlin makes buns. And so it's like a very like... Oh, when I do real burgers, that's what I do. Okay. But that's sort of like when I when I read up on the LA Times, they were like basically go crazy with the condiments yes. and do them super thin for these. And it, it did deliver that fast exactly. food but higher end for me. Yeah, when I do my own burger burger, I do sous vide and like I'm like, let's just add a little gruyere or something <laughs> and like maybe maybe some sauteed balsamic onions. Yeah. But no, I 100% agree with you. But that's what was kind of fun about this. Exactly. I'd never – I haven't made a burger like this at home before. Yeah. And it totally – you're right. It, it isn't exactly beef, but it fits super well into that sort of ecosystem system of like all the thing all the accoutrement that you get with like a fast food burger or even just like a burger out where you're getting like a little more elaborate and where yeah. to me the point is a little bit less about the patty itself and more about everything working together so yeah i'm with you there it was delicious cool. so let's jump into today's uh today's topic which is obviously we talked a lot about rtds and uh rts's uh, so ready to drinks and ready to serves over the past few months and you know a lot of those conversations we've had both on this podcast as well as in next rounds has been with indie producers who've really been leading the way in terms of creating, you know, box Negronis, canned gin and tonics, et cetera. We've had really great conversations with, uh, you know, a bunch of different people who are doing this. So too many to name uh, on the podcast, but you should go back and listen to some of these next rounds. But obviously as always happens, the big brands have realized that this is a space they should now get involved in and they're, and they're jumping in, right? We're seeing, uh, you know, can't, I just saw, I got a, a, a release today that, you know, Bombay Sapphire is releasing their canned gin and tonic that you know, Tanqueray has obviously released theirs. Uh, you know, any moment now uh, that, that big brand that's known for spritzes is probably going to release a canned spritz. Uh, you yeah. know, Crown Royal is coming out with their Crown and Cokes and uh, peach and t- peach whiskey and tea, et cetera. So, Zach, you'd pose this to me. Uh, you know, we talked when we were thinking about the topic for this week as to, you know, so what does this mean, right? Are we going to see the same sort of influence and sort of sales muscle we have seen that the big brands have had in other places uh, in this space? And I think it's a really interesting question, and I think it's. Yes and no. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is I think the, the place we need to look at uh, to determine whether there's going to be the same success is Seltzer. Yep. And so if you look at Hard Seltzer, you have two brands that never existed before who are number one and number two, right? You have White Claw being the big behemoth in the white in the Hard Seltzer space. And then you have uh, you know Truly, who's behind it, not far behind, but far enough behind that they are very clearly number two. But then number three and number four very recently are Bud Light and Corona. Right. So, so brands that have brand recognition. So I think, you know, it's still early to say, and, and look, maybe 
maybe it hasn't been as long for the, the category development, meaning that I don't know if they're if these craft brands have been, the, been in the market as long as White Claw and truly were before the big, you know, people came in. Um, but I think there is going to be a lot of these craft brands that, yeah, are, are, are going to now sort of be SOL because these big boys are coming in. But what do you think? Well, so I think it's really fascinating because in some ways to me, it almost depends on what you're as a consumer, what your thought process behind buying an RTD or RTS cocktail is. So if your thought process is that what appeals to you about it is having a sort of cocktail experience that is somewhat equivalent to the kind of experience that you could have at a bar, at a cocktail bar, maybe not an absolutely elaborate cocktail because that's just never really going to work probably in the RTD or RTS category. But you want to have a drink that's a good, you know, a really nice old fashioned or really nice, um, you know, Negroni or something like that. I think this is an area where the smaller brands can still be and, and the craft brands can really compete because in the end, I think what you're already seeing and I think we'll continue to see is that if you are if you are the big spirits brands, your Tanqueray, your Crown Royal, et cetera, your your approach to putting an RTD or RTS cocktail together is what are our absolute most popular formulations, right? You know, Crown and Cola, peach tea, whiskey and or you know, peach whiskey and tea or whatever, you know, gin and tonic. And and that is going to be what you are going to to put out there. And inherently, you're going to kind of have to appeal to a very large cross-section of drinkers, which means that not that quality will be poor. That's not at all what I'm trying to say, but but merely that you will not be able to offer, I don't think, as much kind of variation and differentiation. And where these craft brands have already, you've already seen it, and I think you will continue to see it, is, okay, great, you can make a, a gin and tonic in a can, but I can make a last word in a can, or I can make um a lion's tail in a can or something, right? That that people who want an experience that is closer to a craft cocktail bar and maybe further away from what you might find in any bar setting on the planet are going to look at craft brands. But of course, <laughs> the thing that's different and I think where the big brands will dominate and where there is, I think, a difference between even uh, hard seltzer and, and this category is that, you know, Bud Light Seltzer and Corona Seltzer have nothing to do with Bud Light or Corona other yeah. than branding. There's no flavor similarity. Whereas if you are a dedicated drinker, and I mean, you know even better than I do, Adam, it has always been remarkable to me how dedicated a huge swath of Bombay Sapphire drinkers or Tangeray drinkers or Crown Royal yeah. drinkers or whatever are to their specific brand, right? It, you know, you can pour them and I've tried and I've been in this experience because sometimes in a bar you run out of the brand that someone wants or you, you know, it's out, yeah, it's not in stock or you don't carry it even. And it's like, you know, for those people from the vast majority they're of not them, happy. <laughs> yeah, they're just like either like they either sometimes just leave or they are like, you know, they're grumblingly like, okay, fine, I will take a different gin or whatever. And for that group, that group is this is going to be a slam dunk. I actually think, and this is the thing I wanted to ask you about. What I wonder is, how are these are these products going to compete for space with just the bottled spirit itself? Because to me, I think that where these where a lot of these RTDs and RTSs are going to have a ton of success, and we've talked about this. Like, you go to an airplane in a year, they're not going to open a can of you know tonic water and give you a little airline bottle of gin. They're just going to give you a can of, you know, whatever, Tangeray gin and tonic or whatever. Like all these categories, all these areas where the process of mixing a drink is onerous, sporting events, you know, other kinds yep. of venues like that, which yep. will one day be open again if they're not already in some places. 
that's where this is going to be. And that's a place where I don't know that the craft brands would have ever competed. I don't know. That was a lot no. of things, but but that's what's been on my mind. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, a lot of what you're saying makes a ton of sense. I think uh, obviously on the craft side, there are going to be people, it, it's the same people, like, look, you're going to always have the consumer. Is it going to be mass? No, but you're always going to have the consumer who loved the, a craft cocktail bar and loved that the bartender behind the bar was pouring some bespoke spirit into the into the can. Now, what I will say though is, what this is going to demand on these these craft producers is they're going to have to start putting what the fucking spirit is that's in the can, because right now where they are losing. And where I think they are going to be in a lot of trouble going forward is a lot of them are not saying what is in the can, right? They're saying this is a gin and tonic. Like, so there's, there's very few brands that I have seen recently that exist that are making spritzes that are making, you know, whatever that are saying we're using this bespoke spirit from this place. Some are right. So like, you know, social, uh, social hour that we interviewed, right? Like Julie Reiner. She's saying that that all the spirits are coming from uh, from a, a distillery in Brooklyn. Uh, I forget the name now, but in Williamsburg, right? So she's saying that's where the spirits are coming from. But others aren't. They're just sort of saying like, uh, like I think Craft House. They say I think uh, two of their drinks they say are Plantation, yep, three star or whatever. But they don't say what any other spirit is, right? If I am now a craft consumer and I care, I want to know like, are you making? Is that daiquiri made with 10 to 1? Is that daiquiri made with Kasama? Like wh- whatever the, the the rum is, like tell me, right? Because that's why I also like going to these craft cocktail bars. Exactly. Um, and instead, like the brands I like are telling me, well, Tanqueray is in here because it's a Tanqueray gin and tonic. Yeah. So I think, you know, that's one place where the craft brands are going to have to get smart. Second, I think you're going to see a huge fight between all the big brands that are all going after the same cocktail. So there's going to be this sort of push for territory between Tanqueray and Bombay, et cetera, and there, and, and flavor will win there. And also the brand that is just the top selling mass market brand will win. So like, I think Tanqueray right now is the number one, like premium gin in America. So t- I, I would assume Tanqueray gin and tonic sells better than Bombay Sapphire gin, gin and tonic. We'll see, but that would just be my assumption. Yeah. Um, Unless Bombay Sapphire Gin and Tonic delivers a better flavor experience. And if you start seeing a lot of press saying, you know, that just it it outperforms by far how delicious it is compared to, uh, you know, a Tanqueray Gin and Tonic. So whoever gets closest to the flavor of a true, you know, gin and tonic that you made fresh is going to is going to win there. Now, the the true brands, though, they're going to just absolutely crush are going to be the, the big market brands that have done the work prior to this to truly own a cocktail. Yeah. And so, you know, obviously there's two that, that you can immediately think of, you know, the Aperol Spritz and and the Negroni, the Campari Negroni, right? Like there's a lot of consumers out there that just, they do not think a Spritz tastes like a Spritz or the Spritz they like without Aperol in it. And they do not think that it is a Negroni without Campari. And it's funny, I was having a conversation with a friend recently who's tried a bunch of these new boxed Negronis uh, that are made by other companies and they're using, you know, their form of their form of sort of bitter, right. You know, and you can call it whatever you want, but they're not using Campari either because I'm sure they can't. Right. Yeah. Probably because Campari is going to come out with their own Negroni and they're just like, it just doesn't taste like a Negroni. Like I like it. It's tasty, but it's not a Negroni. Yeah. 
and they like that Campari flavor. And there, I think, you know, when Campari comes out with its uh, RTD, which I think has already been announced, I think it's gonna be like a, uh, you know, I think, or they already, they might already have one in a full bottle, but they're gonna come out with more. So the RTSs, I guess, is what you would technically call them. It's gonna continue to do well because they own the space. And I'll start, I will, I will really be curious to see if more Spears brands decide, okay, huh, I wonder if this is a way in. I wonder if we try to own the cocktail first as just a traditional spirit that we circle around. So like maybe we are, you know, a rye brand that decides that we should circle around the Sazerac or the Manhattan or whatever. And then we see if we gain traction there and we do well, and then we come out with our own, you know, RTD, RTS around that same drink. Like I would, I don't, I know that Maker's Mark has already like a RTS mint julep. It'll be really interesting to see if like Woodford, which is really known as being, you know, synonymous with the Derby. I think they've sponsored the Derby for however many years now, decades, comes out with their own sort of mint julep because they really are the bourbon that's pushed in your face as the bourbon for mint julep. And if that does well for them, you know, that that could be in uh, in discussion now. Like those are the, the, the spirits that I think will just really kill. Yeah. because of their connection to certain cocktails and everyone else. Yeah. It'd just be like, as you said, if that's already your call, then that's going to be your call here too. Like that, that I think is, and then it's going to be really hard for some other people to catch. Like if you already drink crown and Coke and you now see crown and Coke RTS, of course you're buying it. Like, of course you're buying it. Like, and the only reason you wouldn't enjoy it is because maybe you make your crown and Coke weaker or stronger or with a different cola. Uh, I should have said Crown and Cola, not Crown and Coke, because there's a lot of colas out there. But I'm a Coke guy. Um, <laughs> really? But you know what I mean? Yeah, man, I'm from the South. Come on. I know. I'm I'm well That's, aware. We we call all soda Coke in the South. I know it, it's thrown me <laughs> off before. It's so weird. I'll have Coke, the Sprite. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And I think the other piece of this that's really interesting to me too, and you kind of touched on this a little bit about how with certain spirits they've been able to own a cocktail more. I think it also creates this very interesting uh, sort of thought exercise, which is, okay, what element of any given cocktail is the thing that is most important? And that is, I think, something that is also going to get sorted out in all this. Because one thing I'm curious about is, like, again, the gin and tonic is a perfect example. Are some of these big brands going to collaborate with tonic producers? I mean, obviously, some of them are already kind of in the same broader portfolio. But I wonder if some of the like more highly thought of small, maybe slightly smaller product, I mean, still big production, but you know, whatever, more specialty tonics like, you know, Fever Tree or Q or whatever are going to put out their own version of a gin and tonic or a, uh, you know, or something like that. Because again, the, the question kind of comes back to the consumer, the individual consumer will have to judge what is the thing that is most important to me in this drink? Am I, is it the base spirit? Is it the, you know, additional flavor, the the bittering agent or whatever, in the case of, you know, as you said, the Negroni or the, um, or the Aperol Spritz, or is it the, the mixer in the case of a gin and tonic? And I think you could make a pretty compelling argument that for, that for some people, maybe even myself included in, in a lot of gin and tonics, the tonic is at least as important to me as the gin. Exactly. And so even though I, even if I might prefer, you know, Bombay Sapphire to Tangeray or whatever, what I really care about is what, how, what is the quality of the tonic that's being used? And if it's, you know, the cheapest tonic out there, I might avoid that whole thing and instead either continue to make my own at home. Or if I'm looking for a canned alternative, I might look for a canned alternative that offers a higher quality tonic and maybe at a slightly higher price point. 
but you're but you're a craft consumer, of course, right? You're of a, course. You're right. So you're you're going to be a consumer that appreciates that. Whereas if most consumers are used to like a gin and tonic that I don't want to say is truly off the gun, but is is something like that, yeah. right? They they may be much more they much be, they may be much happier. And I think what what this conversation really brings up, which is just you know a conversation we've had before, but it is always worth reiterating in the world of alcohol is like you know I mean marketing matters. I mean, there are people that just spend a lot on marketing and some of these brands will. And like, that's where, you know, you either have to be in, in the, in the spirit space, especially you'd have to be the first in the game and quick and just take advantage of like the press you get, et cetera, or you got to have a, a, a ton of cash. And it's, it's not a game for people without money, right? Yeah. It's, it's just not. And so, you know, like, I think what's really interesting actually is to think about, a, a very an acquisition that happened this week in the RTD space, and that is Ranch Water, this Ranch Water brand out of uh, Texas that we've written about before on on Vine Pair, right? So they only launched it last April, and they've only grown in Texas, but already so far they're the top. They're in the top five uh, hard seltzer brands that are craft. And they are owning the ranch water space. They're actually, you know, they're saying that they're sweetened with with 100% blue Weber agave. I think though they're actually not tequila based. They're still they're still a malt based mm. RTD, but they're owning the 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 ranch water space. And Diageo sees that as a very quickly growing cocktail. Yeah, and so they bought it. And a right. cocktail that doesn't have a spirit like a specific brand attached to it. Exactly. Yet. And so they bought it. Yep. And like, I think that is like, that's how you win in this space, right? You, you, you quickly run like, so the problem is everyone running into the spritz space, like the spritz space is amazing. Everyone loves spritzes, but everyone, what's your, what's your call for a spritz? It's an Aperol spritz. So even though, yes, like we in the trade know there's lots of spritzes, like the, the, the consumer knows it is an Aperol spritz. So I think that those brands will suffer more because they're just going after they think it's a generic category, but actually for the majority of consumers, it's, it's an Aperol category. Then someone who says, you know what? I see ranch water trending. I don't know. So many tequila brands are around it right now. No tequila brand really came into the space and owned it. I'm just going to create ranch water and I'm going to grow really quickly. And then you, and then you exit. I mean, it is, I mean, I don't think Diageo, I've seen Diageo buy a brand outright that fast in a long time. You know, so that's, that's really incredible and something to think about, especially if you're someone listens to podcasts, that's an entrepreneur as like, you know, what is the cocktail out there that you're seeing kind of bubble up that people are talking about that people are interested in, but it doesn't really seem to have a brand, you know, around it right now. Can you kind of create that and own it and just, you know, be there first? Yeah. Um, you know, ranch water is a phenomenon, you know, that, that's really, you know, only, it only exists right now in Texas. I mean, it's kind of, I know Erica talked about it a lot when she was on the podcast last summer, but like, it still really is a, a very much a Texan and Southern thing that's starting to expand. But yeah, what is some regional cocktail maybe that's big where you live or some other cocktail that's, that, you know, naturally starting to grow. I, I, can you think of one? Sir? I can't, like, I'm, I'm trying to think like now, like, well, what it's so complicated because like the last year has been like, is so stifled and that's completely yeah. stifled innovation. And, but it's really stifled the like, what drinks are spreading because everyone has become so localized for the most part. I, I think that you will see again, a, you know, a real proliferation of this kind of uh, cross pollination of ideas and more than anything else. I mean, that the, we know this, the, the cocktail that there's, there's, you know, vast cocktail literature that could be mined for these kinds of things that could translate well to the can and that don't have a well-known spirit attached to them. And of course there's also, you can always create cocktails. They're not every yeah, true. Good, not every good possibility has been 
has been attempted, although generally speaking, you know, simple things tra- seem to translate well into this medium and, and most of those have been figured out. Like if you were to create one right now, like, cause, okay, so, and this is a caveat, right? Everyone has said, and I think they're right, that no one's ever really, no one yet, so I think you should omit this from your ideas, has figured out citrus in the way that citrus is actually delicious and fresh conscious, right? No one's really figured that out, right? So you can't really give me a daiquiri, you can't really give me a margarita because they don't work to the level I think they need to work in a canned cocktail. Mm-hmm. So if it was anything else, what would you do right now? Well, so a thing that I've been intrigued by just as a general cocktail profile, and it may be a little bit, the the citrus element to this might be tricky to figure out, but I actually think it's a cocktail where the citrus component is a little bit, like you could find a way to do it that doesn't involve fresh juice, even though the, the cocktail kind of generally calls for it, is the bramble. Like to me, that's a perfect cocktail where you have a fruit profile that, that like blackberries, I think tend to do really well in cocktails. We had a whole, we talked a bunch about it last year. Um, you can, you can, again, you don't need fresh blackberry juice. You can use a blackberry liqueur, which is typically how it's done. And it's a gin based cocktail, but it doesn't, it's not, you know, the, the gin is important, but I think like, it's just a cocktail that I think is going to become more popular. And so to me, that's one, even if it isn't as sort of cut and dry as like, you can't own it the way you can potentially ranch water because the spirit is so central to the drink. I don't know. On, with my with my 30 seconds of notice, that's what I came up with. Do you have an idea? I think it's a good idea. I think that's actually a very, I mean, I'm, I, I love a bramble. Um, so for me, I'm, I'm very torn here. So I thought about a lot about the cocktails that I find delicious and all of them have citrus in them. So that's why it's like, yeah, uh, I don't know what to do. And then, I actually, you know, do think the ranch water is fucking brilliant. So yeah. I'm like, okay, well, I can't do that because that already exists. So then I'm like, okay, well, so what would I do? So I'm I'm kind of torn. And I think I think what I would probably do is and I know this is crazy because it is Campari, but I think I'd do a boulevardier. Okay. And I think it's not as well known as being a Campari drink. Sure. I think people no, Campari's leaned in so much to the Negroni that I think I would do a Boulevardier or I would do a white Negroni. So again, no one really knows it as being Campari. No one's expecting it to be Campari, but they're, they are popular and you would, you would draft off the name, but it would be its own thing. Those would be my two. I could see those working for sure. I think you might. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, you would also kind of have to decide, are you, well, I think there's a lot of possibility space for both of those. We'll, we'll have to discuss down the road. I totally. have one quick question for you about this category too, yeah. which is, okay, so so picture a year from now-ish and you're you're going out and you're you're traveling for 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 work and you're staying in a hotel, but you're staying in a like, you know, whatever, not like a, a hotel that has like a great bar attached to it, just a, a generic yeah. kind of hotel bar. And you order a Negroni. Uh-huh. What are the odds that that Negroni is something that they open a can or open a bottle and pour into a glass for you and that it's not mixed in any way that you How many order. years? One year. At the bar or in the mini bar? No, oh, no. Well, at the mini in bar, the mi- I think the answer is yes. In the mini sure. bar, it's 100%. Yes. They're already there. Uh, <laughs> at the bar, depending on the hotel, if it is a national chain hotel, I think it's 50-50. If it's a boutique hotel, I still think it's maybe twenty percent. You're, you know, they're they're gonna be one of these places that's like wants to trade on the fact that they're, you know, a high, they have a high end bar in the hotel. Sure, but if it is a if it is a national chain, 
if I'm at a Hyatt, if I'm at a Hilton, a Weston, a Marriott, it is 50-50, if not 60-40, that it is a very good canned cocktail. Yeah, and and I want to be clear. I I pose the question not because I think that is any kind of judgment-based answer. I just was curious your thoughts because I agree. I think it's going to be – I think as – this whole industry kind of reboots post COVID. I think that's going to be one area that you're just going to see, you know, a lot of the cocktails that you have in a lot of places that are not really focused on cocktail creation and, and um, you know, sort of uh, assembly are, they're going to lean into this category because it's just, it makes a ton of sense from an operator standpoint. Absolutely agree. Well, Zach, this has been super interesting as always. Uh, let us know what everyone who listens to the podcast thinks. Shoot us an email at podcast.vinepair.com. Give us your thoughts. Let us know if you think that uh, you know there's a future uh, in the world of RTDs and, and what the big brands are going are gonna to do. And also love to know how many of you agree with us that you think – if you think that you know, it's 50-50 with the hotel bars, if it's even if it's even higher, sort of where you see this, this category going as well. We always love to know what people think. And any other questions you have as well. Thanks for listening as always. And Zach, I will talk to you next week. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tastings Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.